Uh, kind of caught on to the idea that the dream of our church is to uh, be a growing church of God first believers. God first believers, people who put God first. And so this year we've been focused on the fact that God first believers live soul satisfied lives. And we've been looking at Peter, in particular, first Peter. We first looked at Peter's life when he first met the Lord, and then what happened to him over the course of his lifetime through what he wrote in um, 1 Peter, and it's my plan to uh, begin in the fall with 2 Peter, uh, but the summer, this, this summer, I want to direct your attention to the Old Testament and some of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, in particular, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, <clears throat> um, because Solomon, one of Israel's more colorful kings, um, sets out to explore soul satisfaction under the sun. Is it possible to find satisfaction in my soul, contentment in my soul, under the sun? And that's really what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. King Solomon, uh, if you're familiar with him, was very wise, and he was very wealthy. And so he had the means, and he had the time, and he had the power to pursue all that the world has to offer, and he went after it, kind of asking the question, is there anything under the sun that can bring contentment, that can bring satisfaction to my soul? Is it possible to find soul satisfaction from the outside in? Is that really possible? And Solomon was a man who had the means and the power and the money to be able to do that. Can I get enough of life under the sun so that it would satisfy my soul? This phrase, under the sun, appears 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And often it's coupled with the phrase, under heaven. It's viewing life from a purely human perspective. When you just take what you can discern through your body, through your eyes, through your ears, through what you see, and so on, from a purely human perspective, without consideration of heaven. And I would tell you that if you live life focused on what's under the sun, without consideration for what's above the sun, you will come to the same conclusion that King Solomon came to. And so this morning, I want to invite you to think with me uh, about this. And you need to know that Solomon, you know, was the son of King David. David was Israel's greatest king. One of the greatest compliments in the Bible is given to David, that David was a man after God's own heart. And uh, he was Israel's, without a doubt, greatest king. But if you know the story of David, you'll know that David, even the greatest king, went astray with a woman named Bathsheba. And uh, you perhaps know that chapter in David's life. And Solomon is the second son born to this immoral relationship between David and Bathsheba. And yet God selected Solomon to succeed David on Israel's throne. God selected Solomon. And so um, one reason I think that Solomon could explore life like he did was because his father David fought a lot of fights. David was a man of war. And David solidified the security of the nation of Israel. And then Solomon came to take his place and he enjoyed peace. Solomon actually had 40 years of peace. All the money that used to go into the war chest in David's reign 
now could go to Solomon's exploits in exploring the world, and the revenue went into his building projects and his exploration of life. It enabled him to explore life to the max. And you know, I often think when we think of David and Solomon about how fathers and sons sometimes relate in the context of a business. I had a good friend one time who inherited a business from his father. His father died suddenly, and all of a sudden he owned this business. His father had worked really, really hard to establish this business, and he had gone through a lot of ups and downs, a lot of struggles, and had gained a lot of wisdom. His son was riding on his coattails. And when his son came into that business, the whole thing just collapsed. His son didn't have a clue what he was doing. And I, I, I know of many stories where this is true. The wisdom that is gained by David having to struggle through the hard times, Solomon just didn't have. And so um, when the task of being king first came to Solomon, he was about 20 years old, as, as I figure it, about 20 years or so, give or take a year. And uh, when this assignment came to Solomon, God came to Solomon in a dream. And God spoke directly to Solomon. He did it twice. And you know what he said to Solomon? Do you remember this? He said to Solomon, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Can you imagine a 20-year-old kid? God comes to you, and he says, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. In 1 Kings chapter 3, let me read it for you. Uh, Verse 5 says, at Gibbon... At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered like this, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father, David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child, and I don't know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the peoples that you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count, to number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours. That was Solomon's request. Give me a discerning heart and the ability, the wisdom to know the difference between right and wrong. And I'll tell you, let me read a couple more verses. God was so pleased with this request. Here's what God said. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this, And not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anybody like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will also give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And then Solomon awoke and he realized it was a dream. God was so pleased with Solomon's focus, his priority request that God said, I'll give you everything else. 
And Solomon became renowned as the wisest man in the world of his day. People came from all over the world to hear him speak. And uh, in the Bible, when we talk about a discerning heart or wisdom, it's the ability to uh, take truth and knowledge and apply it to life. And it's got a moral quality about it. Wisdom is moral. It's about right and wrong. It's not just intellectual, it's spiritual. You can't learn this by going to school. It comes from God. It's spiritual. Wisdom is available to anybody who asks God. In fact, even somebody who's the product of this immoral relationship like Solomon could become the wisest person ever. And when we get over into the New Testament, you remember in the book of James, God offers wisdom to anybody who would ask. James chapter 1 and verse 5 says, if anybody lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Anybody can have wisdom if they ask God for it. And this gift of wisdom from God enabled Solomon to write most of the uh, Old Testament wisdom literature. Solomon is responsible for Proverbs, even though other people wrote some of the Proverbs, but overall it was Solomon. And Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, and Solomon wrote what we call the Song of Solomon, uh, which is all about his love life as a king. And so Solomon starts off, I would tell you, as a great example of a God-first person. A great example, as a 20-year-old young man starts out, it's his priority focus to understand and obey God's word. A heart for God is, again, not something we can uh, accommodate or that we can get by willpower or by education. It comes from God. And, uh, you know, verse 11, kind of, God says, you know, here's kind of what I would expect people to ask if God came and said, you know, I'll give you anything you want. What would you like? And God says, well, because you didn't ask for wealth for yourself, and you didn't ask for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering my people, I'll give you these other things as well. And it so pleased God. But I want you to notice, if you have your Bible open to 1 Kings 3, where I've been reading from, in the 14th verse, you will notice, God says this to Solomon. He says, if, if you obey my commands, if you walk in my ways like your father David did, then God makes a conditional covenant with Solomon, unlike the covenant God made with David. When God made a covenant or a promise to David, it was unconditional. God said to David that you will always have somebody sitting on your throne, and he was referring all the way down to Jesus Christ. But with Solomon, it's conditional. You know, Jesus is a direct descendant of King David. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, where the genealogies of Joseph, Jesus' father, is, you'll see he's directly connected through David all the way down, 14 generations and 14 generations. In fact, all the way back to Abraham. Because Jesus Christ is the direct descendant, the promise, the fulfillment of the promise that uh, God made uh, way back there in King David. And so... Solomon did one thing that David didn't do. And it's the key to understanding the difference between the father and the son. Solomon did one thing that David did not do. David repented of his sinful behavior. He changed. He was sorry before God. He was broken. You can read like Psalm 51 where David talks about his relationship with Bathsheba and how broken he is over it. He repented. Solomon makes excuses for his sinful behavior. Let me say that again. There's a huge difference between King David and King Solomon. 
King David repented over his sinful behavior, but Solomon made excuses for his sinful behavior. If you ignore God by making excuses, your love for God begins to grow cold, but when you repent and you agree with God and you change and you do his will, then your love for God grows deeper and stronger. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God, and then he will direct your path. You see, In all of your ways, acknowledge God. And as we'll see here, Solomon didn't do that. Solomon did two things that ticked God off, two things that Solomon knew were wrong, but he did them anyway. And he didn't repent. He didn't change. He made excuses. And so uh, we read in 1 Kings chapter 3, the first thing that Solomon did is, uh, verse 1 says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He married a foreign woman. That was his first step. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The first thing Solomon did is he married foreign women. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, you'll see how God directly forbade the Israelites to marry anybody other than another Israelite. Um, Chapter 7, verse 1, Deuteronomy says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Gerashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not intermarry with them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire, for you are a people holy, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Don't marry foreign wives. Well, it's one thing that Solomon did, and And Solomon not only married, you know, the daughter of uh, Pharaoh, but he eventually accumulated 700 wives, many of them uh, to secure alliances with foreign nations, as we'll see. The second thing that... um, The second thing that Solomon did is uh, in the next couple of verses in 1 Kings chapter 3, it says, um, the people were still... Verse 2 says, the people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Solomon followed the statutes of the Lord, but not completely. He picked and chose. And uh, we might say, uh, I think the Bible might you know, lend us to think that uh, because it was expedient, because the temple wasn't built yet, wasn't finished, that he led the people to worship that compromised God's definition of worship, what God wanted in worship. And it was serious. Um, Solomon corrupted the worship. 
Again, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, um, God had spoken specifically about this. Verses 5 and 6 uh, of Deuteronomy 7, this is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you. Verse 25, the images of their gods you are to burn in the fire, and don't covet the silver and the gold that's on them. And don't take it for yourselves, or you'll be ensnared by it, for it's detestable to the Lord your God. And so God had given directions. But Solomon didn't repent. Solomon made excuses. And many of his marriages solidified these political alliances. And what happened is he eventually began to love his wives more than he loved God. Let me read for, for you again what happened to him. 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, first few verses. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Now listen, and his wives led, them, led him astray. Now before you men start elbowing your wives and blaming them, remember Solomon is the one being addressed here. Solomon is the one who went against God and married all these wives. And these wives led Solomon astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and here's the line, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord anymore. Partially devoted, but not fully devoted. Not God first. God, but not God first. And uh, as the heart of David, his father, had been, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Didn't mean that David was perfect. Solomon wasn't perfect. David repented of his sinful behavior. Solomon made excuses for it. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And so the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe out of the twelve for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. God made an unconditional covenant with David. He made a conditional covenant with Solomon. Solomon would not repent of his sinful behavior, and it was the beginning of his downfall. And uh, when we think about this, you know, I would tell you that the same, this same issue is brought up in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you young people especially should know, don't ever marry a non-Christian. The Bible asks the question, how can darkness and light ever get married? Because there are two opposite passions, two opposite worldviews, two opposite ways of understanding life. 
One is under the sun, and one is connected to what's over the sun. And so this same issue is a very important issue, and it was the beginning of the wisest person on the face of the earth who wouldn't follow God's word. Even the wisest person in the world needs to put themselves under the word of God and to take it seriously. David repented. He changed. He was broken by his sin. Solomon made excuses. He did what was expedient. And, of course, it was under Solomon that Israel divided into a northern and southern kingdom. God was not first in Solomon's life. Now, knowing all of this about Solomon makes the study of the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, extremely powerful. Um, Solomon was settling for life under the sun as he got older. Solomon was settling for life under the sun as he got over, older. And he began to lose touch with God. And I think we can learn a great deal from his wisdom. It seems to me like Ecclesiastes would be the, a, a kind of a writing that you would do towards the end of your life as you're looking back. Maybe Solomon kept a journal. But he's towards the end of his life. He's looking back over his life and what he did with his life. And you and I can learn such wisdom from this book of Ecclesiastes, just reflecting on his experience. Um, it's reflective writing, and I think it's meant by God to help us get the right perspective on our lives. And uh, we don't have to wait very long. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, um, we don't have to wait very long for Solomon's conclusion of all of this investment of his life and what happened. Uh, the first three verses of Ecclesiastes say this, uh, the words of the teacher or the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, here's what he says. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. If you're a King James scholar, you have the word vanity probably stuck in your head. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity, is how the King James Bible puts it. But the idea is the same. Life under the sun cannot satisfy a person's soul. It's meaningless. Um, it's empty. It's futile. It's a vapor. 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon uses this word, meaningless, to describe life as it's limited to under the sun. And I think when you read this and you think about it, you think about the contemporary world in which we live, it's easy to see why people come up pessimistic about life. It's easy to see why people always think the glass is half empty instead of half full. If you're limited to life under the sun, you're going to come to the same conclusion that Solomon came to. And I think it's in the Bible for us so that we don't waste our whole life trying to do what Solomon was trying to do, but that we can learn from his example. Life under the sun disappears quickly. Life under the sun leaves nothing behind. We read it from the scriptures, the 119th Psalm. Life under the sun is like a flower whose, flower, whose the flower falls off and the fades and there's nothing left in its, you know? Uh, life doesn't satisfy our souls under the sun. Life appears to have substance and meaning, but it's like cotton candy. When you bite into it, it evaporates. You think this is so important and you give your life to it, you pursue it, and once you finally get it, you find out it just evaporates like cotton candy. And after a while, you begin to discover, you know, maybe that wasn't so important after all. And life comes up vain or meaningless. And so Solomon then asks a very important question. Verse 3 says, what does a man gain from all his labor? 
Think of all the effort that you put in over the course of a lifetime, every morning, getting up, going to work, doing your thing. What gain is there? What's the profit? What does a man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? And then he goes into this philosophical rant. Generations come, generations go. Sun comes up, sun goes down. Spring comes, winter comes, all this routine. What does it all mean? What's it all, how do you, at the end of your days, what have you gained for all of your labor? When everything is said and done, when, when you turn out the lights on the end of your life, what advantage is there to all of your efforts? And Solomon says, zilch. This is the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful person of his day. And even though, you know, Ecclesiastes was written a long time ago, a couple thousand years before Christ, uh, we're going to find out that it's extremely contemporary. You know what Solomon found in his contemporary world? Injustice, the problem of injustice, the problem of crooked politicians. He's very frustrated with the politicians. The problem of materialism, the problem of guilty people committing more crimes, the problem of incompetent leaders, the problem of people uh, longing for the good old days instead of engaging in the present. And this piece of God's wisdom literature will tell us that if we think life would be great, if we just had some more money or some more power or some more education or more prestige or some more creature comforts, Solomon's going to tell us you're chasing after wind when it comes to the true meaning of life. Solomon had all of that and more and found that life under the sun cannot satisfy your soul. Now, furthermore, Solomon mentions God 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. God is what's above the sun, right? Life under the sun versus life with God who is above the sun. But here's what you need to know. Every single time that Solomon mentions God, he uses the name Elohim for God. Never does he use the name Jehovah. The name Elohim speaks of the God of power the God of sovereignty, the God who created the universe, the God who everybody knows is there, Elohim. The Bible says only a fool says there's no God. But it's only the God of power. The God who uses the name Jehovah is the God of the covenant, the God who makes promises to people. Jehovah is the God that is the personal name of the God who loves sinful people. The God who is self-existent yet cares about people, the God who reveals himself. Jehovah is the God who chooses to engage graciously and relate to people. Solomon, it would appear, knows about God, but doesn't know God in a personal way. And that's why I think this is such a great study, because that's the difference between a person who believes in God and a God-first person. Almost everybody believes in God. Elohim. It's the only explanation for life's dilemmas. But God first people know God, Jehovah. The God who loves them, the God who enters into their life, the God who is personal. And when a God first person gets to know the true God, they can't help but put him first in their life. There's a world of difference between people, a person who believes in God and somebody who's a God-first believer. 
and we're striving to become a church of God-first believers. So when we study the book of Ecclesiastes in the context of the entire Bible, you begin to realize how glad you are that God came to us in the person of Jesus from above the sun and came down and entered into life under the sun. And it's Jesus who came and said this in John 10:10. 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come so that you can have life and you can have it abundantly. Solomon pursued life under the sun with all the resources you could possibly have and came up with the conclusion, vanity, meaninglessness. Jesus comes into this life under the sun and says, I'm here so that you can have life. One of the things that Solomon will touch on, one of Solomon's observations about life under the sun is the reality of death. And Solomon is like, you know, what does it really matter if you're a fool or you're a wise person? Everybody's going to die and it all ends. And he has this kind of outlook that uh, takes into consideration the reality of how death hangs over all of our living. And aren't you glad that Jesus Christ comes from the other side of the sun into life under the sun and says, God so loves this world, the people of this world, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish, die, but instead have what? Everlasting life. Aren't you glad when you study the book of Ecclesiastes about life under the sun that when Jesus came into the world, he said that our efforts matter. Solomon says, boy, when you just limit life to what's under the sun and you work hard all your life and you gain some stuff and lose some stuff and then you die, what good is it? It's all meaningless. It's all vain. It all amounts to nothing. Jesus came into the world and he said, listen, your labor in the Lord is never in vain. The Bible says that your deeds follow you into heaven and are rewarded. The, remember when Jesus said, inasmuch as you give a cup of cold water to somebody in my name, you're doing it for me, and it matters, and I take note of it. What a difference, living your life under the sun, all is vain, and living your life connected to the Lord who came from above the sun to give us life, to conquer death, to impregnate us with meaning and purpose that lasts for eternity. When you hear and believe what God is saying to us in the book of Ecclesiastes and you put it in the context of the whole Bible, you can't wait to meet Jesus. You can't wait to have Jesus be first in your life. You can't wait to move your life from simply living in the kingdom of this world below the sun to living in contact with Jesus who comes to us from above the sun. I'm excited about studying Ecclesiastes this summer. I hope you are too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, now it's our privilege to go to the communion table this morning and to reflect on the fact that you sent your only begotten son, Jesus, into the world in order that we might have life, in order that death might be conquered, and in order that our lives might become meaningful and purposeful and rich. And so I pray this morning that as we approach the table, Father, that we will do so with really grateful and thankful hearts that will so appreciate the fact that you came from beyond the sun and entered into our life under the sun in order to take away all the observations that Solomon discovered and to give us real life in Jesus. 
And it's in his name we pray this morning. Amen.